Shalom Mishpocha. Shalom, family. Mishpocha is a Hebrew word. It means family, and we're the Mishpocha, the family with the Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people where the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, it's finally come down to form one new man. Getting ready, Mishpocha, to blow the grandest shofar or the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to be red hot for the Messiah. I have uh, Bill Morford on the telephone, and uh, you might recall I interviewed him several years ago, and we made available a fresh translation of the New Covenant called the Power New Testament. And uh, it was so successful that Bill and I have had discussions uh, that we really need available to our mishpacha an entire Bible with the uh, Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament all together. And I knew of a, an approved Jewish translation that was in the public domain, uh, uh, published by the Hebrew uh, Bible Society, uh, and, uh, and he checked into it, and he's finally put it all together. Now, you might say, why does the world need a new translation of the Bible? We have so many translations. It's because this one is different. There are several things that makes it different. First of all, the power of the Greek New Testament was hijacked. Now, Bill Morford... Why, in your opinion, was the power from the translation hijacked uh, in the other Bibles, but not in yours? Why? Because the, the scholars who are always appointed to do official translation are appointed for their scholarship, not because of their relationship with the living God. And they, they simply don't know. And that's one of the reasons. They don't look on God to heal them. They don't look to the Lord to deliver them from other spirits that are plaguing them. And they, they're simply unaware of the power that's there. Plus, they use tradition. They know how it's been translated in the past, and they make minor changes as they do new translation. But, but let's go back to the King James that some people think is the language Jesus spoke in. Uh, but uh, was there prejudice there against power? Yes, all the way back. Uh, because these people were not walking in intimacy with God or all the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, because uh, you have s some of the—for uh, instance, uh, I don't know if this is the best example— but in uh, Mark 11, verse 23 and 24, truly I say to you that whoever would say to this mountain, you must immediately be removed and you must immediately be cast into the sea and would not doubt in his heart, but would believe what he is saying is happening. It shall be to him. Because of this, I say to you, you must continually pray for everything. Then, for whatever you are asking, believe that you have taken it, and it will be there for you. Bill, I love it where you say, believe that you have taken it, 
It, that's the type of thing you mean by a restoration of the power uh, of, of the words of the Messiah in the whole new covenant. That's right. And it's amazing to me how many times the scholars translate the words that mean take, they translate as receive. So you've restored the power that was normally neglected by the translators. The next thing you did is you restored the Jewish roots. Now, when the New Testament was written, it was written for Jews, by Jews, in a Jewish time. And so a lot of things were taken for granted and not necessary to, uh, to bring out. Uh, and uh, as a result, because it wasn't brought out, literally the Jewish culture was hijacked and the Christian which and originally started with a pagan culture was incorporated because everyone needs culture. Uh, and today we think that the culture that was incorporated was what it was when the Bible was originally written, but it wasn't. Now in 1984, uh, you went to Israel and that's when God started giving you revelation about what we're talking about. Tell me about that. Oh, that was exciting. Wherever we went, I would see things that, of course, we were with a Christian tour looking for Christian things, but I'd see the Jewishness behind them. And when, I, when we came back is when I really started to dig deeply into the languages. Uh, well, you've studied uh, Greek. You've studied Hebrew. Uh, tell me who you studied Greek under. Arnold Goss is his name. He was on the faculty at Columbia Bible College, which is now Columbia International University. He has a Ph.D. in Greek, and he was a personal tutor for me for well over three years. And then who did you study Hebrew under? Eliezer Ben Yehuda, who is an awesome scholar. He, too, has a Ph.D., and when I when I hear his name, I don't think of him. I I think of his grandfather, uh, who is credited as the man that restored the language of Hebrew to Israel, the spoken language. That's right. I mean, if if I was to pick one person on on planet Earth to be mentored under, it would be uh, Rabbi uh, Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Yeah, and it was the Lord put us in the right place. At the right time. He moved us to Lakeland, Florida in 1993, and we didn't know a soul there. We just felt that that's where we were supposed to be. And one month after getting there, I was, just as usual, taking one hour early in the morning to translate Greek so I wouldn't forget what I had learned. And the Lord told me I had to get serious with it. So I looked around first for a Messianic rabbi, and there was none. So I went to the only synagogue in town. Well, what kind of synagogue was it? It was a conservative Jewish synagogue, and the rabbi there was Eliezer Ben Yehuda. And he invited me immediately to attend his classes that he was teaching and recommended a number of reference books to me, which I got right away because I knew that there were so many Hebrew idioms and Jewish customs in the Greek 
that were intact there that I needed help to be able to properly translate them. And the rabbi gave me a huge list, which I got. And then I attended his classes and had a lot of personal time with him. We met several times a week, and it was just amazing. Every every question I had, he could answer. Now, how many years would you say you have invested of your life uh, for this a brand new translation called the One New Man Bible, which uh, includes uh, the Power New Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, the, I might add, the approved Hebrew Scriptures, uh, and the revised Power New Testament, and you call it now the One New Man Bible. How many years did you put into that? About 12 years full-time work, and the last seven years, it was more than seven years ago that I first got the Jewish translation that I I used as the base for this. It's been <laughs> a long time, and it's, of course, restricted my ministry. We had a traveling ministry, but I haven't been able to travel much. Last year, I had a total of three services at at different churches. Uh, well, let me take you... Okay, so you've actually put in... Uh, over 20 years, 12 years full-time in this project. Uh, Now, another thing you deal with that other Bibles don't deal with, and that is idioms. What is an idiom? Well, an idiom that we like in this country is it's raining cats and dogs. (laughs) And we know what it means. Or we say it's a gully washer. But somebody who speaks a foreign language and just starting to learn English Here's his raining cats and dogs, and they look out expecting to see small animals coming out of the sky. But that's not what it, what it talks about. And, and if you don't understand the Hebrew idioms, uh, when, when it talks about uh, removing your eye, <laughs> it's, someone's going to think literally they're going to have to chop their hand off or remove their eye. When I read that, I, I wondered what it was, because even though I come from an Orthodox Jewish background— I didn't know these idioms because they were from 2,000 years ago. Right, right. And what we have to do is interpret the biblical languages for what the authors of them meant in there. Now, you also deal with what you call correcting the tenses. Why do the tenses have to be corrected in the Bible? That's a mystery to me, why they're not translated properly. And one of my favorites is the ironic blessing, which is not may the Lord bless you, but it's the Lord will bless you, and he will keep you. Well, that's so much better when the tense is corrected. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. Um, we have the full Bible, and it's 4,300 footnotes and customs and words, then a 170-page glossary. Where if someone was to just read the glossary, it would be worth their while. I am so pleased to tell you we've put together our One New Man mentoring set, which includes this amazing One New Man Bible. Uh, this is the diamond of the group, and the inspiring 2012 Jewish calendar, 
most anointed world-class photographs of rivers in Israel, the dates of the Jewish feast, the exact Bible readings that Jesus himself read, and then my book, The Incomplete Church, all three items available in the One New Man Mentoring Set, available for a donation of $79. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697, 1-800-447-2697. The New Testament, what did, what did you use as the basis of that? Although it is a fresh translation, you still needed a, uh, a Greek translation. What did you use for that? I used the fourth edition, United Bible Society, uh, Greek text. Now, why did you choose that? Because it's the newest, the latest. The United Bible Society is a group that meets in Germany, but they're multinational. And they have made their life work to be searching the ancient Greek manuscripts to determine which ones are closest to the original. They use methods similar to that used in researching the Greek classics, but it's it's called uh, textual criticism. But that's that's the most accurate that we have and the closest to what was written in the first century. Okay, so you have this approved Jewish scriptures, you have the best Greek translation, you, you study Greek under a top expert. You study Hebrew under the expert of experts, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yehuda, who's the grandson of the man that literally pioneered modern Hebrew in Israel. Without him, we would not be able to have one language for all these Jews coming from the four corners of the earth that are being restored. Uh, you, why was it important for you? to bring out the power which is normally neglected in the New Covenant. Why was that important for you to bring it out? Well, God is very, very powerful in the way he talks and the way he directs people. One of my favorite examples is when he spoke to Moses and said to go into Pharaoh. He didn't say, plead with Moses, let my people go. What he said was, go in and command him, say, send my people away, just like that. I mean, that makes a world of difference. And you can imagine for a slave whom Pharaoh could behead without having a second thought, going in, standing in front of Pharaoh and giving him a commandment to do something that Pharaoh very definitely did not want to do. And yet Pharaoh could see the Spirit of God on Moses and on Aaron. And he did not kill them, obviously. And he even said, pray for me. So Pharaoh was (laughs) intimidated by God's presence in Moses. And it, it doesn't show when he goes in and pleads with Moses But when you understand that Moses didn't go in to plead with Pharaoh, Moses went in there to command him. And that's just, to me, it's it's one of the most awesome statements in Scripture. 
Well, as I'm looking over your fresh, brand new translation, uh, you deal with things that most most of us that are listening right now don't have a clue. But it's so important. For instance, uh, you have the Hebrew negative imperative tense, do not in bold. Explain why you did that. Because this is one Rabbi Ben Yehuda is very strong on. He said that there is no comparative to the Hebrew negative command, the negative imperative, that the closest I can come with is don't even think about doing. But it's even stronger than that. And it's used a number of times. In fact, one of the words that is often mistranslated is the Hebrew word for respect, revere, or awe. And we translate it as fear. Well, God commands us not only not to have fear, he commands us to not be in awe at any of our enemies, any of our dangerous circumstances, any unpleasantness that we have. We are not to be awed by that. We're to be, just take it in stride. And it's a command to do that. Just God wants us to know who we are in him. We have to know. We have the spirit of the living God in us. And that just as Moses was taught to go into Pharaoh, we are to approach the world in the same way. But Moses was the most humble man in the world. So we have a question of humility plus self-confidence that when we know we have the Lord in us and he is directing us and we're in his perfect will, we have the strength and the ability to do anything. Now, why is it important for a Christian that isn't Jewish, uh, that's not in a Jewish culture, to understand the Jewish roots of Christianity? Why is that important? Well, because Jesus was born a Jew. He lived a Jew. He died a Jew. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever into the future. We need to understand what he understood. We need to worship as he worshiped. We need to celebrate the holidays that he celebrated. We just need to copy him. We're supposed to become more like him. What? Let me ask you this. You were a spirit-filled believer. You understood healing. Uh, you loved the Lord. Um, but in 1984, when you went to Israel, you knew there was something wrong. Now that you've done all these studies, and I mean, I, I, I don't know how you did it. There are some 4,300 footnotes on words and customs and culture, a 170-page glossary. What difference has it made to your life, Bill Morford? It has increased my faith, increased my understanding with God, increased my understanding of Scripture, as I can relate it more to my, my life today. And it's given me more power in my prophetic words. I'm ordained it, 
at Christian International under Bishop Hammond. And we do a lot of prophecies. Bill, I understand why you're so excited about the Jewish roots. Uh, For instance, uh, the average Christian doesn't know, unless they had your Bible, of course, that communion literally comes out of Passover. Explain that. Oh, that's beautiful. comes from Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. And what we do when we're taking communion, it's given properly in Luke 22, starting with verse 17. When Jesus lifted the first cup, what he was referring to from Exodus 6, verse 6, is God said, I will bring you out from Egypt, which to all of us modern Christians means he is bringing us out of the world. Egypt represents the world and worldliness, which we're supposed to be. Well, well, for starters, some may not even realize at the Passover meal, we have four cups of wine. So the first, first cup means what? I will bring you out from Egypt. That God is bringing us out from our desire for worldly things and for the, from the oppression of the world. And the second cup, which is drunk during the meal, is, I will rescue you from your bondage. And that's deliverance from all demonic spirits that we have with that cup. The third cup is called the cup of redemption. And this is the one that Jesus lifted and said, this is the cup of the renewed covenant in my blood, which is being poured out for you today. It's so much richer when you understand in context. And that whole context, uh, the the first church totally understood, but we don't understand it today. How can anyone comprehend communion without knowing Passover, Bill? (laughs) Right. You can't do it. You get the full understanding when you know that. So that is that is footnoted in the Bible, and then that's in, there's an article in the Seasons of the Lord in the glossary on that. Uh, you must have studied a lot of Jewish literature to do 4,300 <laughs> footnotes and a 170-page glossary. That I did. And I did. I have a wonderful library now of reference books. And I can just go anywhere in the Bible and and back up the things that I've I've put in those footnotes. They're very real to me, and they're, they're, they're real to everybody. That's why this is important. My guest is Red Hot for the Messiah. His name is Bill Morford, and he has spent 20 years on this project of the translation of a new Bible. It's both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. He's used as, as his basis a approved copy of the Hebrew Scriptures that any Jew in the world would say, this is our Bible, and the best trans- Greek uh, uh, rendition of the New Testament— uh, and he's brought out the meanings 
of the idioms. If you didn't know the Jewish idioms, uh, when 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 uh, Jesus says, "Pluck out your eye." <laughs> You might think you have to really pluck your eye out. You don't know what that is. What does that idiom mean, by the way, Bill? Well, if your eye is evil, it means you're stingy. If your eye is good, it means you're generous. So what he's saying is, if you're stingy, get rid of your stinginess. Get a generous spirit. And, and what, what about when he says, cut off your right hand? What does that mean? The same thing, that... If your hand offends you, which could indicate any number of, of improper actions, cut it off means stop doing it. doesn't mean cut off your hand. It means stop doing that. And the right hand is, is a, a statement of power. Now, Bill, uh, you went back to the Hebrew names, not in a lot of areas, but like uh, for Jesus, you said Yeshua, for Mary— you used her Hebrew name, Miriam. For law, you said Torah. For James, uh, you went to his Hebrew name, Jacob. For uh, trumpet, you say shofar. Only, only, only a few of these adjustments, but uh, wh- what difference does it make uh, whether the Bible says Jesus or Yeshua? Well, Yeshua is very significant because that's the name that was given to Miriam by the angel Gabriel. And Yeshua is a Hebrew word that means to deliver. It's a verb. It means to deliver or to save. But deliverance is the first. And he came to set us free, to deliver us from religious spirits as well as, as any demonic oppression. So where did we get the name Jesus from? Because when you write it in Greek, Greek has no S-H sound. So it couldn't be Yeshua. It comes out Yesu. And when that was translated into Latin, the same letters, the Latin equivalent of the Greek, are used for his name. And when that was translated into English in the Middle Ages, what they did was they they used the German J for I, because in German, the J is the equivalent of the Hebrew Yod. And the Saxons had come in and taken over England and brought a German influence into the English language. So it actually was pronounced Yesu in, in English originally, but in a few hundred years, it had changed dramatically, and it had our modern J sound. So that's how the J came in. How how about then, uh, how did we get James from Jacob? They're they're not the same. (laughs) They're two different people. And and we have Jacob in the Jewish scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures. So why shouldn't we have Jacob in the New Testament? Yeah. But so how did we get that? Uh, It's because the, the group that was hired to translate the uh, King James Version, wanted to bless their benefactor. And it's named after King James. So they changed his name to James. I wonder how many Christians know that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not.
not very many. Uh, okay, but I mean, I, I, I don't get those two, so maybe I'll try for a third. What about, how did we get Mary instead of Miriam? I mean, why don't we change uh, Miriam, uh, the sister of Moses, to Mary in, in the Hebrew Scriptures? <laughs> <laughs> Maria is the Latin instead of Mary. But why do we want a Latin name? Why don't we want her na- Why shouldn't we have her name? Because the first English translations were made from the Latin Vulgate text. And there are a number of Latin words that didn't get translated. That's the mansion in John 15. Uh, uh, it's the tabernacle. That's the tabernacle of David. The word in the Hebrew is not tabernacle. It's uh, sukkah. And that's from Amos, Amos 9, uh, where the booth of David is resurrected and restored. And it's speaking of the kingly line. So the family of David, in other the words. The family of David, yes. So, and we always thought it was the place that David worshipped. <laughs> so, so you're saying that all this teaching about David's tabernacle, how, where did it come from? Why did they mistranslate it? Because of the Latin? Because they, they, didn't, they didn't translate the Latin word tabernaculum. Latin did not have a word for booth. And it did not. It's word for tent was tabernaculum. So that was used for the tabernacle in the wilderness, which is the Hebrew word mishkan. And we don't have an English word for mishkan, so tabernacle is entirely appropriate to use there. But a tent, we have a word for, so we should use tent. Booth, we have a word for. Sukkah, we need to have as booth of David to put that in perspective so that we know we're talking about the messianic reign. And in Acts 15, it says to go on talking about world evangelism. And that's what it's for. The messianic reign is going to take the word of God throughout the earth. Absolutely. Okay. I'm, I'm having difficulty understanding what you've said already as to why they did that. So let's try another one. How did they get a trumpet? I know what a trumpet is, you know, it's, but it's not a shofar. Why did they switch shofar to trumpet? It definitely wasn't a trumpet with the three keys <laughs> that you, you know? <laughs> right. Well, the, the Latin used the word uh, for trumpet instead of the word uh, for shofar. It doesn't have shofar, actually, in either Greek or Latin. So when the first English translations were made, the people were ignorant of the shofar, and they just translate trumpet. Now, the Feast of Trumpets, there is no trumpet blown. Of course, you know that. I've never seen a trumpet in a synagogue. I, I mean, the, these may sound like little things to people, but I'm interested in truth. In fact, I have to ask you this question. Uh, this, you took 20 years on this project, the One New Man Bible. Uh, and um, were, you, were you after trying to reinforce your beliefs when you did these translations? No, I didn't. I just wanted to find truth. That's all I was looking for. I was... 
course, wanted to grow in the Lord. I did not try to impose my ideas. In fact, as I dug in, it changed my theology. Not that I changed the theology in the, in the Bible. Now, you, the books in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures are not in the same order as, say, uh, the Bibles used in Christianity. Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, I really love the Jewish book order. It is so much easier to to follow, to understand. All right, but wait a second. The last book in in uh, in the Jewish scriptures is Chronicles. Right. Um, how does that fit with the first book of the New Testament? Oh, it's beautiful. And see, Chronicles was the last book written in the Hebrew Scriptures. You know, I think it's important to know what was the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures, as opposed to Malachi. It was Chronicles. Right. I, I just think that's a very important thing. But, but so if you go from Chronicles to Matthew, how does that work out? Does it work out any better than Malachi to uh, Matthew? It is. It's a beautiful flow. In fact, that book order flows beautifully from Genesis all the way through, not just Chronicles, but on through Revelation. It really is an easy book to read cover to cover and do it time after time after time. Every time you do it, every time you read it, you gain new things. You see things you've never seen before. And it's awesome the way you can just feel the flow going from Chronicles into Matthew. Uh, and, and speaking about the flow, another thing I found interesting, uh, you've made note of what are the Torah readings and the readings from the prophets uh, that are read in every synagogue from the time of Jesus. They were read, and when Jesus would go into the synagogue, that's what he would read for that particular day. It was his readings, uh, and that's still being read today in synagogues throughout the world. Uh, do you find this fascinating to know you're reading what Jesus read on the particular day uh, from the Torah, and it's being read today in synagogues all over the world? That is. It's it's really wonderful, and my wife and I read that at home. Whoops, we're out of time. I am so pleased to tell you we've put together our One New Man mentoring set, which includes this amazing One New Man Bible. Uh, this is the diamond of the group, and the inspiring 2012 Jewish calendar most anointed world-class photographs of rivers in Israel, the dates of the Jewish feast, the exact Bible readings that Jesus himself read, and then my book, The Incomplete Church, all three items available in the One New Man Mentoring Set, available for a donation of $79. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. I have the most fascinating translation, brand new translation of the scriptures uh, that you're ever going to see. It's called the One New Man Bible. The New Testament captures the original power that was neglected 
by the translators of, uh, of, of the, say, the King James Bible. It's recaptured the true culture of Christianity, which is Jewish, which unfortunately Christianity has distanced itself from. It gives you footnotes to understand idioms, uh, such as when you read, cut your right hand off. Uh, That's an idiom. That's not what it literally means. Uh, It's got the correct tenses, the the power uh, in the the Bible that was neglected by most of the translators. And it's got over 4,300 footnotes. It's got 170 pages of glossary because Bill Morford has spent 20 years doing this research. And uh, the original translations that he translated from was uh, for the... Hebrew Scriptures, it was an approved Hebrew Scripture uh, put out by the Hebrew Publishing Company, and it was the best Greek translation known. And then, in addition, he studied Greek for himself, and he studied Hebrew for himself, and he studied under the finest man that I know to learn Hebrew, the grandson of the man that pioneered Hebrew for the nation of Israel as a spoken language. Uh, it was Rabbi Eliezer ben Yehuda, uh, and and uh, it, I mean, you found out so many amazing things. For instance, uh, when the scriptures talk about the temple, it really should be talking about the sanctuary. Explain that, and what difference does it make? Oh, there's a huge difference there. That's right. Every reference to the body where most translations say your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, or that Jesus was referring to his body as the temple. Not so, not so. All those references in the New Testament are referring to the sanctuary. The temple has an outer court where sin is welcome. Those of us who are saved, who have been washed by the blood, have no no business having a place in our bodies where sin is welcome. To step into the holy place, you had to be forgiven of everything. You had to confess everything. If you had sin in your life and you set your foot on the threshold of the holy place, you were dead. And that's the way we are. If we accept sin in our lives, we're not going to step into heaven. We're lost. So we don't want our bodies to have any place where sin is acceptable. And we are the sanctuary. All those references uh, by Paul or in the Gospels are to the sanctuary. And it's it's interesting that the, the Greek word for temple is hiero. The Greek word for sanctuary is naos. They're two entirely different words. But we translate, the modern translations, or not even the older translations, uh, is we translated everything temple rather than sanctuary where sanctuary belongs and temple where temple belongs. Right. And because of that, most Bible dictionaries cite temple as an acceptable translation of Nas. But when you really dig into it, it's not. It's a it's a different a different thing. 
and it's only used once in the Bible uh, as something other than the body, and that's to, uh, or the actual sanctuary, the Jewish sanctuary, and that's to a sanctuary of Artemis in Ephesus. Uh, Okay. Uh, How about this? I have always heard that amen means so be it. I never heard what it really meant. Explain. (laughs) That was one uh, that Rabbi Ben Yehuda brought to me because even my best Hebrew-English lexicon has it meaning something related to that's true or whatever relates it to the word emet, but it is not. (laughs) It means el melech ne'aman, which means God is a faithful sovereign. God is a faithful king. And it's it's not a word in Hebrew. There is no root word for it. Okay. Now, I've always heard that Paul was a tent maker. Uh, You take issue with that. Oh, definitely. The the Greek word translated tent maker is actually a compound word that literally says tent maker. But it was not a word in the Koine Greek language or classic Greek language that referred to making tents. It was not a Greek word at all. It was one that Paul and Luke both made up. And it it's... Um, its meaning is described in the Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich lexicon by a whole column written by Bauer that ends up saying he didn't know what it meant, but he knew it was a skill that had to be learned, had to be approved by someone, and highly technical in its nature, but he didn't know what it was. And there are other Greek words. Okay, so what is it? If that's not what... Wait, we know that it's not a tent maker, so what is it? It's making prayer shawls. Because the prayer shawl was called either a tent and would be pulled up over the head to uh, hide, just to give a place of privacy. And uh, another name for it is a private room, a tamion which is one that Jesus talked about when you go into your... So just because they didn't know the, uh, know the culture, they made him a tent maker rather than a talit or a prayer shawl maker. Right. That's, that's made. And you know, another thing I love about your translation is you explain the Messianic prophecies. For instance, Isaiah 7, 14 says, A virgin shall conceive and have a child. But in the Hebrew Scriptures, it says, A young woman shall conceive and have a child. Uh, and and uh, so which is right? Well, the Hebrew literally says a young woman, although the word used there today means virgin. And in in the first century, in Bible times, a young Jewish woman had to be a virgin when she got married, or she could be stoned. That was the order. So they would. So if she wasn't a virgin, she would have been stoned, and she wouldn't have been around to have a child. <laughs> right. So so actually, that is a correct 
translation to have young woman, but you need the footnote so that someone will understand it when they don't say virgin. Right. What about um, binding and loosing? Yes, they were Hebrew idioms. That uh, to bind meant to forbid, and to loose meant to permit. And where they're used in Matthew, both chapters 16 and 18, the tense that use is used is actually saying that whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven with ongoing effect. It's still working in heaven. And what we bind on earth then must already have been bound in heaven. So it isn't that we can make new rules and we decide what needs to be bound. Uh, we're not God. We're his servant. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And there are a couple of words that are mistrans. One means to come, and yet it's translated go, which is strange, like the opposite direction. God never told Noah to go into the ark. He said, come. God was already in there. He's saying, come, come with me. And he never told Moses to go into Pharaoh. It was always, come. The Spirit of the Lord was already in with Moses, I mean with Pharaoh, and was with Moses too. And the Spirit of the Lord took Moses into Pharaoh. But a, a neat one that is go is in in uh, Genesis 12, God, God didn't just say, go to Moses, what he said, I mean, to uh, Abraham. What he said to Abraham was, get yourself out of here. He issued a very strong command for Abraham to get going. So what's not in Scripture is probably that God had been dealing with him for a while to uh, to get on his way, but it's interesting that that's that's actually what he said is get. Oh, oh, you, you know, you're going to shake so many people up with Romans 16, where you show about a woman in authority. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, that's squeezed out of all the other translations. Uh, I'm sorry, we're out of time. We'll pick up right here on tomorrow's broadcast. Now, on yesterday's broadcast, we got a lot of people listening to us today, Bill Morford, and we're talking about his brand new translation, fresh, vibrant translation. It's different than any other translation. Reminds me of Passover. We say, why is this day different than any other day? Well, Bill Morford, why is your translation different than any other translation? Because I went through looking for the power that's been left out. In fact, years ago, when I was studying Greek, 25 years ago or more, I'd tell people, you know, this is what it really says. And they'd say, well, you need to do a translation. I said, no, no. That's intimidating now to, to deal with Scripture that way. But over the years, I got so upset in reading our watered-down translations. The power is there in the Greek. When you say the power, what do you mean by that? Explain. In the New Testament particularly, the, the imperative mood there 
means you must do this. And then the tense of the verb tells you you must do it continually or you must do it now, depending on which tense it is. So I put that in, and I've had a couple of pastors that study Greek that tell me that they used to have to go through their Bible before they, when they were preparing a, a message for the coming Sunday, that they wanted to know, is it, is it an imperative in the first place, and is it present tense or aorist tense? But anyway, it it just got to me when God t- finally told me to get serious with it. Then I knew I had to and got into it. Okay. On yesterday's broadcast, we were talking about Phoebe in Romans 16. Tell me about her. Well, she's very interesting. She was actually, technically, a woman set over, over others. And Paul said... Are you telling me Phoebe was set over men? Yes. You better not tell that in your Baptist church around the corner. <laughs> right, right. And and here... Well, well, how do you know that? Because of the the uh, Greek word that she's there describing her. Explain that. It means a woman set over others. Boy, this would sure change a lot of people's theology if they only understood about Phoebe. Um, let, let's talk about healing, because that, that was a thing that originally tran- attracted me to your translation. Uh, I had never seen before that one of the definitions of the Greek word for sickness is evil. Right. Now, I believe that sickness is evil, but I didn't know that that was the translation. Tell me, explain that exactly. Well, the Greek word that I translate evil, when it's heal, is kakos, which is actually the adverbial form, it's strange, of a word with one letter difference, an omicron, instead of an omega. The adverbial form is listed in the best classic and koina Greek lexicon under this, you know, as the same word. And it gives just the the uh, noun form. Uh, okay. If it is evil, why do we translate it sickness? Well, you'll have to go back a few hundred years and ask those that did it. <laughs> okay. After them, it's tradition. All right. What a difference that makes. To me, it really gets, it, it, it calls sickness what it really is. Evil. I, I, I mean, if it's sickness, well, get over it. But if it's evil, get rid of it. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a big difference. Uh, tell me about uh, the woman that touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Yes. That's awesome. She came up behind him. And see, his prayer shawl then was a huge garment. It was like a poncho. And it went from wrist to wrist and down to his knees, and had the fringes on the corners. The fringes called the tzitzit. And she knew that the tzitzit represented all the commandments and promises of God. And that if, when that was worn on an anointed man of God, she just had to touch that, and she would be healed. And she did, and was healed. Came up behind him, and Jesus could feel the power leaving him. And in Luke, Luke is the one that records it, that as she confessed 
to Jesus that she was the one that touched his garment as she confessed she was healed, which gives us a very, very important uh, what rule to have in healing is to confess it. Confess that we're healed. Whether she felt it or not, she confessed it, and as she confessed, she was healed. Okay, as she reached to, uh, of course, it's it's the tzitzit, uh, the fringes, uh, it wasn't the hem of his garment, uh, but as she reached to it, what did that mean to her? It means she was touching all that God had. That That fringe represented all the commandments of God and all the promises. That sure sounds a lot more meaningful to me than the hem of his garment. <laughs> yeah, they're not quite the same, are they? Okay. Now, when you translate Isaiah 53, you came up with a revelation I've never heard anyone come up before on the word stripes. Explain that. Right. That's very interesting. The The word there is chavurato, and what it means is literally on his his wounds, his stripes, either one is correct. But in modern Hebrew, hafura means fellowship. And so there there is an Orthodox Jewish Bible in use in Orthodox synagogues in the US today that translates that not as wounds or stripes, but translates it as fellowship. Now, let me see if I understand this. In other words, it could be translated wounds or stripes, and it could equally, as it's done in this uh, approved Hebrew scriptures, be translated fellowship. But I think you need both. You need to know what the blood of Jesus by his stripes brought us, and you also need to have fellowship with the Lord. Right. But but that is such a, a wonderful revelation. Okay, now, tell me about I am that I am. Oh, yes. Well, the I am is significant. Two common words for I am are ani, which simply means I am, and anohi, which is I am with an attitude. It's determination. And the anohi is used over a hundred times with God speaking. Uh, give me an example uh, and, and say it with that attitude. Right. Uh, Isaiah 43.11. God says, I am, I am the only Savior. And in 43.25, he says, I am, I am the one who forgives all your transgressions. Uh, wait a second. You said that twice. It doesn't say it twice in the scriptures. Yes, it does. No. In my King James Bible, it doesn't. <laughs> well, it does. Anohi, anohi is there in... No, in the translation, <laughs> it doesn't say that. In the Hebrew, it does it say it in your King James? No. No. So, so uh, why, why, why wouldn't it say "I am, I am" with an attitude? Yeah. Why not? Well, I sure agree with you. Why not? <laughs> I did. I put it in twice. 
All right, why should someone get get a hold of the One New Man Bible? Um, I just, I put the Anahi, when that's I am, I put that in bold so that there's no missing it, so that you know it's not just I am doing this, but when it's the I am with an attitude, when there's determination, I have determined that this is what I'm going to do. And see, in, in Isaiah 43:25, what he says is, I erase all your sins. Erase. That means it never happened. Satan might remember it, might have another record, but his record doesn't count. The official record says that sin never happened. Isn't that awesome? I am so pleased to tell you we've put together our One New Man mentoring set, which includes this amazing One New Man Bible. Uh, this is the diamond of the group. And the inspiring 2012 Jewish calendar, most anointed world-class photographs of rivers in Israel, the dates of the Jewish feast, the exact Bible readings that Jesus himself read, and then my book, The Incomplete Church, all three items available in the One New Man Mentoring Set, available for a donation of $79. This is the Shabbat Broadcast, and Bill Morford, I'm going to let you do something I've never asked a guest to do. But you have corrected the translation of the Aaronic benediction. Would you pray that in English with the way it really is in the Hebrew? Oh, yes. The Lord will bless you, and he will keep you. The Lord will make his face to shine upon you, and he will be gracious to you. The Lord will lift his countenance to you, and he will establish you in shalom. Yivarechecha Adonai Ve'yishmarecha Yo'er Adonai Panevelecha V'chonecha Yisa Adonai To hear this week's interview in its entirety, or to watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. Dot org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpocha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 1918, Brunswick, Georgia, 31521, or call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. To place a credit card order, call anytime. 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 912-265-2500. That's 912-265-2500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, send a donation of $10 or more to Sid Roth, 
That's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 1918, Brunswick, Georgia, 31521.